Hello, my ladies, my gays, my theys, and the men who get it. We are back for part two of <laughs> this Whedon saga. Peyton, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry. I have so many more terrible things to tell you. Well, let's all go ahead and buckle up. And Peyton, do you want to just start where we left off? Let's continue. <laughs> so... <laughs> so the way the way that all of this really comes out into the mainstream media is in July of 2020, a actor publicly calls him out about his misbehavior on a set. Now, this specific set um, was a very unique situation. Um, as many people know, there, along with Marvel, there is also DC. They also are trying to make a cinematic universe. One of the films that they were really working on was the Justice League. Now, the Justice League, while it was in production, um, it was being directed by Zack Snyder. And Zack Snyder's family had a family tragedy where he needed to leave production very suddenly. Um, if Assuming that what he reported is accurate, took the appropriate time he needed to take care of himself and his family. Now, this leaves the Justice League production in a really terrible bind. Um, it is... DC's attempt to recreate the Avengers and so far their cinematic universe has not quite been making the bucks like no. Marvel has no so who do they bring in to take over the production Joss Whedon the architect behind Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron we'll just steal um, their shit <laughs> we'll literally bring them in right and so he comes in and you know, there's reports coming out that it's a little tense on set, but that makes sense. I mean, a new director's coming in to try and panic finish a movie and there's all these reshoots. Anyway, movie comes out. It does not do well. It is not great. Uh, if anyone remembers the um, Superman mustache gate, that oh, was where this comes from. My God. Uh, Henry Cavill was already uh, in the midst of filming a Mission Impossible film with a mustache had to come back for reshoots and the production behind mission impossible refused to let him shave. So rather That's than insane. having um, Superman or Clark Kent with a little facial hair, cause you can't have that. Um, they CGI'd it out. <laughs> that lip so is offensive and terrifying. It's so bad. But anyway, I digress. That's just a fun little anecdote. Yet another um, thing they're willing to do another to thing spend that, money on yeah they're doing cgi on versus protecting actual actors like you know we've we've really got to choke the women here but uh we can spend millions of dollars to cgi off his mustache yeah horribly so it comes out it, it's doesn't it's, do it was great. horrible it was horrible yeah. That's a different podcast, but keep going. It is. Now, the interesting part comes in July of 2020. Ray Fisher, who uh, played Cyborg in both Justice League and Batman versus Superman, uh, came out on Twitter and said, Joss Whedon's onset treatment of the cast and crew of Justice League was gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable. He was enabled in many ways by Jeff Johns and John Berg accountability is greater than entertainment and then the floodgates opened oh my word this was possibly the first well probably the worst day in Joss Whedon's life because this was the beginning of the end now after Ray comes out there is an outpouring of support from 
actors and actresses that had either worked on the Justice League or previous uh, works of Joss Whedon. Now, following that, uh, Charisma Carpenter, who is a phenomenal actress and person and better at several cons, she's just a ray of sunshine. Um, she was an actress on both Buffy and Angel. She played the role of Cordelia Chase. So Charisma Carpenter comes out with a lengthy statement on Twitter. Um, the title is My Truth, period, hashtag I stand with Ray Fisher. And it is a scathing indictment of Joss Whedon's treatment of her throughout her time on his set. And when I say it's all bad and then gets worse, it is. Um, she speaks in general about how he, you know, was egotistical on set, how he, you know, used his, you know, power to intimidate and bully, you know, people, whether it was actors or people behind the scenes. And she goes on to say that he, oh, this is just one of the worst things that I've ever read. It's so terrible. Um, she, while she was working on Angel, she uh, became unexpectedly pregnant and she tries to go to her boss and talk to him about that. And when she comes in to speak with him, they're having a closed door meeting and he asked if she was, quote, going to keep it. And then as she put it, manipulatively weaponized my womanhood and faith against me. He proceeded to attack my character, mock my religious belief, and accuse me of sabotaging the show, and then unceremoniously fired me the following season once I had given birth. Uh, didn't she say that he kind of, without saying it, wanted her to end the pregnancy? Yeah, he's, he asked if she was going to keep it. But with the, with the kind of... With the, it, yes. Yes, with the vibe of you're not going to right 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 and she felt as if he wanted her to not keep it for yes, the show correct and Ugh. she decided to not end the pregnancy boy did he make her pay for it um at six months pregnant she was asked to report to work at one in the morning directly after her doctor recommended that she needed to shorten her work hours for her safety oh. and the babies why would she need to be there at one to show her who's boss. I mean, in oh. her own words, she says, um, due to long and physically demanding days and the emotional stress of having to defend my knees as a working pregnant woman, she began to experience Bracton's Hicks contractions. And it was clear to me that the 1 a.m. call was retaliatory. That's insane. There's no reason to have a 1 a.m. call like that. No. And the other thing that she goes on to say is, as we've talked about with other women in these situations who don't feel comfortable saying no she goes on to say that she excuse me i swallowed the mistreatment and carried on after i had a baby on the way and i was the primary breadwinner of my growing family that's insane yep and then she goes on to say how you know in spite of how cruel he was to her she still you know she basically describes a trauma bond where she still is looking for his validation and is trying to prove that she is good enough and you know she ends up being just cast out from the show and fired. And it's interesting that after all this came out, it suddenly gave a whole lot of context to her character's end on that show. Because even when the show was airing, people were very unhappy with her ending because 
it you know people even talked about how you know her character was ruined they just threw her away what what is yeah oh this is why yeah this is why imagine being silent about that for that long because that would have been 20 years 20 yeah i was gonna say for 20 years knowing that man did all that stuff to you and having to zip your lip and not say anything about it and what's what is such a credit to her is that in an interview she says the reason she decided to come forward was because she saw ray fisher's statement and she and ray had become friends because nowadays a lot of um, her income comes from doing cons and you know various conventions and he's on that circuit too and they became friends and seeing that this person is still she was quoted as saying something along the lines of seeing that this person is still doing this 20 years later right she felt like she needed to come forward and say her truth and even before she made the statement she was already in the mix because after ray fisher's original statement he had some follow-ups um Warner Brothers did an internal investigation and they interviewed her as part of that about his history of abuse on set. And, you know, they never publicly said what happened, but they said remedial action was taken. So that means he was wrong. Right. Well, it's interesting because like, that's the way these dudes get away with it for so long. Like Quentin Tarantino, for example, like everybody knows that guy is an asshole he's everybody knows that he acts like an asshole he's an asshole in his interviews it's not surprising i mean the lengths he goes to that's kind of surprising for anybody but 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 he's not he's not pretending to be something he's not you know he's an ass but but if you know people come out with like i think people have come out with different things over the years but joss had presented himself and had put him on himself on such a pedestal and then we raised him up even higher because facilitated it yeah yeah because he's this guy who is saying he wants to flip the script he doesn't want women to be victims he wants them to be the strong one he wants them to be the brave one this you know the one that saves the day instead of the damsel in distress and that sounds great except except he's lying he's lying and it, it, it's just it, it showcases like why this nice guy persona is so detrimental and so toxic and so insidious is like mm-hmm. these nobody even before the first one breaks like nobody can even come out because on the grandest of scales nobody's going to believe you and not only is nobody going to believe you you have several fandoms you have marvel you had dc could have been in the mix you have uh, the whole Whedon verse. The whole Whedon verse. All of which these they people, are. We are rabid folks. Vicious. Like we, they can. We be like that stuff, and yeah. I, I am one of them. Well, the, and she even says that in an interview later that she was she was taking real a real risk coming forward because, as she said, like these conventions, it's that's a huge part of her income, and she is risking alienating all of the fans and you know people that have been so supportive and so kind to her like she really is just a lovely human and frames everything from such a compassionate place like she wasn't saying like oh man they might get pissed at me and not pay me anymore like she really was like i don't want to hurt them but i i can't not yeah come forward with this yeah after her statement comes out then all hell breaks loose and you know all sorts of other actresses that worked on buffy come forward with their own statements the majority of them are not nearly as in depth as charisma statement, but uh, you know, completely saying they stand with her. You know what was done on the set was not okay. Um, 
for example, Amber Benson, who uh, was on Buffy as Tara. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of the most precious characters who <laughs> fell to one of the worst tropes, the barrier gaze. Yep. Um, yep. But anyway, she uh, shared charisma statement and said, Buffy was a toxic environment and it starts at the top. Charisma is speaking truth and I support her 100%. There was a lot of damage done during that time and many of us are still processing it 20 years later, or 20 plus years later. I stand with Ray Fisher. I stand with Charisma Carpenter. Mm. And then one of the more horrifying responses to it was Michelle, and I never say her last name right now, I apologize. Michelle Trachtenberg, I think I said that right. Um, she was a you know like child star in the 90s from harriet the spy and she um was dawn on buffy and she said in her statement that there was a rule on set that joss whedon was not allowed to be alone with her and she was a minor she was 14 when she got cast in it yeah and was still a minor at the end of the production yeah yep And that grown man was not allowed to be in a closed room with her without supervision. So two things. One, that's horrifying. Two, that means people knew. Like, Mm -hmm. that's crazy to think about. This wasn't like, and that's the thing about Hollywood and like these sets. It's like, it's not that people don't know. It's that like people don't, aren't coming forward because of the power that these men have. And it's like. Like the fact that they put that rule in, like not only how horrifying is the, is Joss that they had to put that rule in, but how many people were aware. Well, and how many of us have been in situations like that of our own, you know, where it's, and again, this is their job. Yeah. Like this is their livelihood. Their survival depends on this. You know, this is how they're paying for housing. This is how they're paying for food. This is how they get healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, how many of us have been in a situation where it's our job and our boss puts us in a shitty situation and, oh, you got, you know, we got to laugh it off. You got to just make it work. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's where all the, the whisper networks come in mm-hmm. because we can't say it out loud. We just have to try and warn every other woman to, you know, hopefully give them a heads up before they're putting in position that we ourselves are put in. And usually, and it's the people that mention it or try and fix it that typically get it the worst. And so then that reinforces the idea of the culture of silence because, oh man, I saw what happened to them and uh, all right, I'll, I'll do what I'm supposed to do and not make a fuss. Mm -hmm. Just as we've discussed with all these other women and their various horrifying onset stories. So all of these other actors and actresses come out with their various statements and every statement I could find was in support of what Ray Fisher and Charisma Carpenter was saying. And another actress that came forward with her own story was Gal Gadot from the Justice League filming shenanigans. I am furious about this to this day. Oh, and it, oh, he doubles down on it too, which makes oh, it so God. much worse. You have to remember Gal Gadot's coming off of Wonder Woman with Patty Jenkins, where it was like so respectful and so empowering and such a beautiful vision. And the character, even the way the character was shot, when you went from Wonder Woman to the next time Wonder Woman is portrayed, it was, I think it might Justice have been League. Dawn, she's, she's in Dawn of Justice for a half a second at the very end when they're fighting. So that's... Oh, Lord. I don't know my DC stuff. But yes, regardless, the difference between how she's portrayed in Patty Jenkins from versus any other 
DC film, her and the rest of the Amazons. Well, yeah, well, first of all, the amount of clothing they're wearing, but they all of a sudden are in bikinis, but which is like, yeah, I'm sure people who battle on a regular basis are wearing bikinis. But even the way she was shot, people have done like a comparison of the films and it's like they started shooting her from a down angle, looking up at her butt, looking up her skirt. Patty Jenkins obviously did the opposite of that. That was empowering and, and showed her strength. And it was so feminist and so wonderful. And then she hops on in to this set with joss whedon and would you like to tell us i already know but would you like to tell our listeners what he did to her oh so many things first of all the first thing that i heard about it before the really terrible things came out is it was clear when he came on set that he was just trying to make avengers 2.0 and was literally calling her natasha or scarlet on set oh good great because they're interchangeable and he added a bit where there's some sort of explosion and everyone's sort of thrown aside and the flash lands in her chest, yep. which is a bit that was reused from Avengers Age of Ultron, where the same thing happens to Black Widow and Bruce Banner. Because mm-hmm. it's so funny when, you know, a woman's in a traumatic situation and a man falls into her boobs. And is she that she doesn't consent to? She's assaulted after a traumatic incident? To be fair, it's it's framed as like they get tossed to the it's side. It's framed as a whoopsie. It's framed as a whoopsie, but yes. Um, and to her immense credit, uh, Gal Gadot refused to film it. So if you watch the film when that happens, you cannot. Diana's face is not shown because it's a stunt double. Because she and, refused. And just to point out, in the film world like that's a not uncommon like i don't want to do that i'm not going to do that and what happens most of the time is people will be like oh okay you're not like people cater to stars all the time especially gal gadot who's wonder woman and has a lot of power and influence right the fact that when she said a scene that was so meaningless that was not important at all to the script. There's literally a sight gag. A sight gag. gag. It was a boob gag. And she said, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't want this. He was willing to piss her off and got a stunt double to film it instead. When his one of his leads said, I'm uncomfortable with this scene, instead of scrapping this meaningless gag that he's done before, there's a million ways to make a joke. They're like, he says, you know what? No, I'm so dedicated to sexualizing women and making a ha-ha of women's boobies that I'm going to bring in a stunt double to do this scene. Like, that's how deep that uh misogyny is and also the power the power you're not going to get me to change my script i'll do it without you exactly and he when she is interviewed about her time on set he made it very clear that he thought that she was so beneath him because gal gadot (laughs) are you kidding he said that he was going to ruin her career he was going to make sure she never worked again why because she because of the boob gag because she wasn't just doing exactly what he wanted her to do. Oh my, because she was a human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she is quoted as saying that director Joss Whedon, quote, threatened my career during the reshoots for the Justice League. And she is also quoted as saying, I was shocked by the way that he spoke to me. You're dizzy because you can't believe this was just said to you. And if he says it to me, then obviously he says it to many other people. Right. And then she, you know, goes on to say in a different interview, 
that he kind of threatened my career and said that if I did something, he would make my career miserable. And wouldn't, you know, when people go back to Joss to ask like, well, what do you have to say about this? He makes a comment about how she must not have understood because English isn't her first language. Oh, um, would you excuse me for a moment? I'm going to internally combust in the background from rage. It's like you can't, like, they just, at the second of pushbacks, you're like, how can I degrade this person? How? I've already degraded her. I've already made her feel like shit. But now I'm going to publicly make, what would, what would it, uh, it's not, is it a, a racist joke like what is what would yeah you it's racist it? it's racist right yeah it's like oh she doesn't speak english yep that's basically what he said he's like oh get she messaged to me because she doesn't speak english like sir what the hell did you just say to me the fact that that wasn't enough alone just for people to be like oh f off dude like that's what i'm saying these guys are so entitled these guys are so entitled like the entitlement is on the tip of their tongue the venom that they have for women is so close that if you just give them a little pushback they will say some of the most atrocious things they will say things that men you consider to be bad quote unquote wouldn't even say it's insane and they'll use anything to discredit you yeah anything they can think of um so this was a during his infamous uh, interview in New York Magazine, his uh, attempt to win us all back. Oh Jesus! I God bless the author of that or the the journalist um, because she she just gave him the rope and he took care of it himself. She's like, I'll just ask the right questions. He said, I don't threaten people who does that, and then goes on to say, English is not her first language, and I tend to be annoyingly flowery in my speech. Right. So she misunderstood what he was saying. And then she responded to that statement saying, I understood him perfectly fine. So now it almost sounds like he's saying not only does she not speak English, but she's uneducated. Yep. Mm. Well, and that's the thing. Uh, You know, if you can't, you know, discredit her one way, you got to discredit her another way. Right. What can I use against her? What do I have in my arsenal? Again, like you got to decode these statements. Like they're so foul. Some of these are outwardly foul, but like you dig even deeper. It's like, not only did he discredit her, like he could have just said, there must have been a misunderstanding. Like he could, I I, I believe he's lying, but like he could have just said, she misunderstood me or I apologize if I said the wrong thing. No, and that's the thing. He doubles down on it, yeah. all of it. He's so misogynistic that he is he is misogynistic and entitled and an asshole to the ten millionth degree to the very end. Even in his statement back, like that's how that's how bad he is that he can't even step away from it. He continued to do that with everyone else. Like he recently was quoted as saying that he believed that you know Ray Fisher, you know, shouldn't be taken seriously because he is a bad actor in more than one sense. He can't act. And he, you know, hypothesized that Ray Fisher was trying to sabotage the production from within because Zack Snyder was gone. Right. Cause that really makes sense for this young actor who is in what was supposed to be one of the biggest movies of the year, if not the decade, had it gone the way DC wanted it to like, yeah, he's really going to want to sabotage that. And speaking of sabotaging, Joss also cut out a 
majority of his scenes. That he did. Cyborg is barely in it, which he blamed on his quote-unquote bad acting. But it's very interesting that the guy who went against him is suddenly and miraculously cut out of the film. And wouldn't you know, when the Snyder Cut was released, all of those scenes are put back in and it's literally the heart of the film. Mm. Like the film is built around his character and his character's journey and there's a whole thing about like his dad and it it's and his ah. acting's good <laughs> yeah well and that's and i've seen other like content creators you know i was looking for other tweets about it or you know just seeing other people's perspectives and just multiple people pointed out like yeah that lie would work if we hadn't seen him in other things right like he's he's good Dude, this isn't the only movie he's ever worked on. And the other thing is, so for for those of you who don't know, the Snyder Cut, the demand for the Snyder Cut, it was like this crazy fan-led revolution, angsty, like, we need the Snyder Cut, because there was a cut that Snyder did of the footage. Um, And like, you know, the movie, the movie wasn't good, but there were some diehard DC fans who said, yeah, that's because Joss Whedon came in in the middle of it and granted Joss Whedon, aside from his horrible misogynistic things he was doing, he was also jacking with the tone of the film because where Zack Snyder's version of the film was a dark and gritty action movie, Joss Whedon can't help but put booby jokes in there. So there's this really awkward tonal shift where he tried to make it the Avengers, which the majority of the film was not shot that way. So when they did all these reshoots, there's this really weird tone issue. Again, like gritty with booby jokes, like it didn't make sense. So people were like, oh no, it's the Snyder Cut. The Snyder Cut would be good because, you know, a lot of DC fans were upset that there's this Marvel versus DC is a whole thing. And the DC community was like, no, it would have been good if it was his vision. Anyways, in an unprecedented, unprecedented move, they're like, fine, shut up. I don't want to hear it. And they come out with the Snyder cut, which I've never heard of happening. If it's happened before, where a fan driven, like demand for a different cut to be released has actually occurred. No, I mean, it's, on this scale it's absolutely unprecedented there have been other films where you know decades later you'll get a recut where it's or like director's the director's cut, cut or yeah. the the lost version it, sure. i believe blade runner is the prime example of that where like yes. every 10 years there's a new cut um but not not to this scale and not to this yeah this was this was unprecedented it was unprecedented but the crazy like and part of the reason like there was no way joss would have known that like joss could never have predicted nor could any of us what would happen and so joss was saying these lies thinking he was going to be a-okay cutting him out of the film thinking his lies were going to be the utter truth were going to be seen as the word of god because that's always how it's been in his world and then there's all this proof of like wait a second his performance not only was his performance not bad enough to be cut but you messed with the plot and you messed with the heart of the film and you messed with the emotions and the substance of the script just to cut out this guy and that's one of the big where i think even people who weren't maybe on the feminist path were like wait a second why are we cutting out cyborg you know it was this other element of like this guy's doing some messed up stuff and well and then that adds a a whole nother level of just 
abuse of power where it's not only misogynistic, but it's it's racist. Ray Fisher is a, is a man of color. And, and the character of Cyborg is a is a an African-American man. Like yeah. that is and that is integral to his story and his experience. And, you know, Ray Fisher has gone on record as saying that Zack Snyder had this very, you know, collaborative energy while they were working on the film before he had to step down and that he, you know, listened to Ray and really wanted to make sure that they were making a film that was authentic to that experience of that person. You know, Zack Snyder was aware of the fact that he is a white man white, and might not understand the perspective of a man of color. Of a black man. <laughs> uh, Joss Whedon uh, basically told Ray to stick it where the sun don't shine and had no interest in that. And then, like you said, cut most of it straight out of the film. And then added the mustache. Oh my God. Superman crap. And as a white person myself, I don't talk a lot about like the intersectionality of race with misogyny and nice guys because I don't feel like that's my place to speak on, but, or it's not my experience and I would never want to speak on something and, and say something that didn't ring true to the people I was speaking about. But I do want to point out like misogyny and racism and sexism. And when when someone has one of those, when someone has that trait, it is very often tied to the others because it's all about power, who you can have power over, who you can harm with less pushback and who, in my mind, who society gives you gives less punishment for. Mm-hmm. You see this in these guys who think they're better than it's not just, you know, nice nice guys or narcissistic people or or people who just abuse power you know it's not just women that they're abusing as is the case with allegedly with joss whedon according to the people that he abused these people who have this viewpoint who think they're better than will across the board go for people that they know they can abuse because it's you know it's not just one area and so it shouldn't be surprising to people that if he was such a raging misogynist that was loved to abuse power that he would also be abusing other people of disenfranchised communities and minorities because he knew he had the power to do so. Right. And if you look at Joss Whedon's canon, um, it's, it's very, it's very white. It's a lot of white. It is the sea of caucasity um, with very, few instances of people of color being involved and like you to add to what you said i think the only time that i would ever as a a white woman would ever speak to anything of the experience of um indigenous or people of color is only to elevate their voices because i i have no room to speak about that whatsoever the only reason i bring it up is because it would feel it feels like a disservice not to oh i 100 agree um after all of these um accusations come out and there's the internal investigation at the wb and they actually do find fault because they said they took remedial action um good old good old joss decides to give an interview because <laughs> if nice guys think anything it's that i am so f-ing charming and so f-ing smart that i can manipulate america by doing a f-ing interview because if anybody's gonna manipulate someone to to believe this bullshit, it's gonna be me 
And I can talk my way out of anything. Of course, because I have. Yeah. Well, I've created my whole my own world. Why why shouldn't this work? And when I tell you that this article just makes me want to scream and run and just live in a, a hut in the woods and never ever look at a man again. Will you tell us uh, the 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 author as well? Make sure I want to make sure we correct absolutely. The it is the exceptional Lila Shapiro um, who wrote the article. Uh, it's called "The Undoing of Joss Whedon: The Buffy Creator, Once an Icon of Hollywood Feminism, Is Now an Outcast Accused of Misogyny." How did he get here? And she just opens the conversation with him and lets him just talk himself into even more trouble if you let a nice guy speak without interruption that's like if a nice guy is ever starting to go off on you don't don't stop it like i mean definitely if not if he's being belligerent but like let him talk give him a second because when nice guys start like monologuing and they stop thinking about what they're saying and you're not giving them any feedback they will spiral and unleash all of that that stuff that's hidden deep down will vomit out of their little nice guy mouths and they will say the truth that they so desperately try to hide so i I love that i love that he's she's like go ahead no please tell me more that's the best phrase tell me more oh yeah i mean and boy does he and I mean, and she she's even quoted as saying and speaking to, you know, colleagues of hers, like, I don't know why he has agreed to this. And I, I would assume that his uh, PR team was just, you know, sweating bullets, screaming, <laughs> begging him not to do this. But of course, as the consummate storyteller, egomaniac. Oh, that's the word for it. I've created I mean, even- the fantasy. I will continue to do that. <laughs> the fantasy of who I am. Right. Well, and even like one of the first quotes in the article is that, you know, he says, I'm terrified, he said, of every word that comes out of my mouth. It's like, then why are you talking? Stop talking then. You're an idiot. But also, thank you. Thank you for talking. I love that you're outing yourself. But yeah, I would I would recommend to anybody who can to check out this article um, because, it, you know, he tries really hard to excuse, not even excuse, but just explain why he's not wrong and he goes into talking about his upbringing and how, you know, he oh, had a strong one. mom and how, you know, but, you know, it was complicated and just, oh, it's terrible. At one point she asks him like, you know, is there, is there anything that you really regret or anything you look back on that you wish you could have done differently? And instead of talking about all of the times he could have chosen to behave with decorum and give his staff and employees basic human dignity he goes back to this you know admittedly very sad event that happened in his childhood where he was a small child and another small child that he was playing with um, near a pond you know he remembers walking away and the other child ended up drowning in that pond okay which is very very sad but basically he you know is sort of alluding to the fact that he feels like it you know he doesn't say that it was his fault, but he just, you know, he tells the story and then just moves on. So let's just just pause for a moment on that one. 
and break down why that's so f***ed up. So this man isn't in an interview and undoubtedly understands that this interview is relating to his atrocious treatment of women and people of color and seemingly everybody on his set. And when asked about that, because as a nice guy will do, or maybe a narcissist will do, I can't diagnose him, I'm just throwing that term out there, because the question wasn't incredibly specific, because they didn't say, do you have any regrets about your treatment of women or people of color, right? He evades that. He goes He goes on a different tangent. He goes to a different story. And he talks about a time that he didn't step in to help, right? Which is still in alignment with the feeling he should be giving, was that he, he did the wrong thing, right? But in that sense, that's a story where, like, he's not really the bad guy right that's no he was a literal child so he's infantilizing himself in the sense of like he's putting himself as a child you know i'm just a child who you know accidentally wasn't looking and somebody drowned it's like he's putting himself like this is never not on accident people like this is a writer this guy like you could say of somebody uh you know joe schmo on the street wouldn't maybe be thinking this deeply but this man is a a, a wordsmith he's a crafter of stories there is no way this was not a deliberate choice to sidestep the issue and then tell an issue of regret that was forever ago when he was even if, if this did happen right a child where he's he feels bad but anyone listening is just going to feel sympathy for him that's what that story sh- would evoke in a different context and that's exactly what he's trying to evoke so that is such a disgust disgusting manipulation with zero accountability like i don't want to i don't want to take accountability for anything i've done as a full grown grown ass man but let me tell you a weird story from my childhood where i was a little boy and i didn't do anything really wrong but something terrible happened and i still kind of feel bad about that are you are you joking that's what you feel bad about hmm that's very telling and So much of what he chooses to say just shows exactly how little accountability he is willing to take and how much he doesn't think he did anything wrong. And to that point, I think it's very interesting because a misconception I had growing up, especially when I was younger, was like, oh, they just don't know better. They just don't understand. If I could just explain it to them, they would see me as a person. If I could just explain why sexualizing me is bad or talking down to me is bad, then they would get it. And it's like, no, they do get it. They don't care. Joss Whedon knew what he was doing. He was purposeful. He did it for 20 plus years. It's not that he didn't know. It's that he does not care. Yeah, and then it, when we get to the very end where it's like his final word on the situation, what he says, you know, quote, nobody ever fell from a pedestal into anything but a pit. He told her. What? And then, you know, in his attempt to make peace with himself, he says, could I have done, um, to just kind of go over all the mistakes he's made in, To make peace with himself, he says, could I have done marriage better, he asked. Don't get me started. Could I have been a better showrunner? Absolutely. Should I have been nicer? He considered the question. Perhaps he could have been calmer, more direct. But would that not have compromised the work? 
Maybe the problem was he was too nice, he said. He'd wanted people to love him, which meant he was direct. People thought he was harsh. In any case, he decided he was done worrying about all that. People had been using, quote, every weaponized world of the modern era to make it seem like I was an abusive monster, he said. Quote, I think I'm one of the nicer showrunners that's ever been. End quote. What? Yup, that's how it ends. Uh, I think the people on, on your set would beg to differ and have. The fact that like, oh my, the fact that he's like, had to consider, should I have been nicer? And then is saying, actually, literally the most nice guy thing I ever heard in my life. Actually, me abusing people was because I was too nice. Actually, it's because I just wanted everybody to like me. Really? Because no, the f*** it wasn't. Yeah, it's all bad. There's something that my brain's been sticking on. You mentioned something about a proxy earlier on. Yes, and that's something that I wanted us to shift the conversation to talk about that. Because that is one of the things that has been most horrifying to to me as a fan to look back at the canon of his work to see where that comes up. So in addition to talking about a proxy, something that has to be talked about, especially with Buffy, among other things, is the amount of self-insert fiction that he created. In Buffy specifically, one of the characters is clearly a proxy for Whedon himself. Who is it? Xander. Do you know how many times I have been asked to do Xander from Buffy? And you should. You should, because... <laughs> He is literally the self-insert of Joss Whedon. It is his, you know, when I spoke of a proxy before, I mentioned it towards the women that he is wanting to control. But in this case, that's his proxy. Ugh. So Xander, as you've been told by many people asking you to uh, rip him a, a new one, is the quintessential nice guy. Ugh. Like all the quotes. He's nerdy, he skateboards, and he's, you know, he's Buffy's best friend, and she just never sees him that way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they set up very quickly when the in the very first episode is that, you know, um, he's pining after Buffy, but that he's also had a crush on Cordelia. Cordelia is the queen bee of the high school, played by Charisma Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And she's the mean girl. She has very biting things to say about everybody. She's picks on Xander, picks on all of them. Um, but wouldn't you know it, she and Xander end up dating. Oh my God. The nerdy guy gets the hot cheerleader who didn't want him, but he got her to come around and wouldn't you know, he cheats on her. Of course he does. He gets to cheat on her. He cheats on her. I can just see him with his little pencil late at night. Be like, <laughs> I got her. Got her. So. And so not only does he get not only does he get to cheat on the sexy cheerleader that didn't give him the time of day when he deserved her all along, he gets to cheat on her with his adorable, sweet best friend, Willow. Oh, God. And he Ugh. cheats on her knowing that she has been pining for him. Like she's been in love with him since they were kids. And so he... Foul. So he gets to put both of those archetypes of women in their place wow. through that writing. He gets to get both girls, both the queen bee head cheerleader who is untouchable and the sweet, kind best friend who, you know, 
Like Madonna she, and the she's whore. She's pining after. Exactly. He gets to have them both and hurt them both. And somehow comes out being, still ends up being the nice guy. And he's still trying to get Buffy with all of that. Mm-hmm. The whole time. You could, until all this stuff about Joss came out, you could make the argument that it was, you know, a product of the time. You know, because there was a lot of, you know, stuff from the 90s and early O's where, oh, that's him being romantic. When, no, it's really creepy. That's actually quite creepy. Time and time again, he goes out of his way to try and, you know, manipulate Buffy into loving him. Ew. I know there's more examples and I'm sure people will be coming to tell you. But like the prime example that just makes me want to scream is that whole storyline with him and Cordelia and Willow. That's so and gross. He, he gets to get them both and shame them both. Isn't there, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there also some discourse that while filming Buffy, he started getting jealous of Sarah Michelle Gellar and her fame? Oh, yes, he did. And mm-hmm. that her storyline, because let's take it full circle when we were talking at the beginning about violence towards women, that her storyline, because I know this is how messed up it was just to see how I ended up where I am today. I remember watching and I was obsessed with Spike and there's that storyline with him and her. And like, it was yep. very tumultuous from the start. It was a tumultuous relationship, but I remember watching and there was a point at like when he was abusing her and like, there was one that was really essay, but there was a multiple questionable Yes. And wouldn't you know, the timing of that storyline perfectly coincides with Sarah Michelle Gellar becoming uh, a star and trying to exert more autonomy in the creative process. Wouldn't you know that that lines up perfectly? I I actually read about, so there's a scene, I'm not getting into the detail, nobody worry, um, where Spike attempts, does not actually, but attempts to essay Buffy. And speaking of actors' experiences, um, James... Marsters. Marsters, thank you. So James talked about this scene, and part of what renders the scene so discomforting is that way the camera alternates between Buffy and Spike's up-close perspective and a clinical God's-eye view of the bathroom, where the comparatively small figures break out in a physical struggle. And what he says was, it was the hardest day of my professional life. I was curled up in a fetal position in between takes. I can't watch a scene like that. I choose not to. I won't go to a movie that has something like that. It's a specific hot button for me. It just really makes me crazy. It was really hard. It was just unbelievably hard. And then he says he's glad he did it because Spike was evil. Okay, but he says of Joss, I think he wanted to reinforce in the most dramatic way imaginable and also give Spike a really good reason to try to reform and try and become better and try to get a soul. So yet again this man's need to be violent towards a woman puts an actor in immense pain himself puts him through a traumatic experience i I can't even speak to what she went through through the experience i don't have a quote from her on it i can't imagine if james felt it was horrible i'm sure buffy was but he's explaining like he was curled up in the fetal position like that's how brutal it was for him to film this 
And Josh was like, nope, we really need this scene in there. There's no other way to prove an evil vampire. There's no way to show he's evil other than to try and assault Buffy. Really? Really? Well, and on that note, there's also another story from James about how Joss Whedon assaulted him on set. What? Yeah. So back in season two, when his character Spike is introduced, he was only supposed to be on a handful of episodes yes. and then he was going to be gone. Well, the you know fans and the network loved him. And so they were going to make Joss Whedon keep him around. And that was not what Joss wanted. So he took it out on the actor. Give me a moment to find the quote. Yeah, I know Joss Whedon did not want a very attractive, ripped, very charming man around. I am sure of that. Joss wants to kill off this character. And the studio says, no, you can't. And he gets very frustrated by this and ends up shoving James against a wall and saying, I don't care how popular you are, kid. You are dead. You are dead. You are dead. Like inches from his face. Uh, what? Yep. This man is unhinged. And even when, even when James is relaying this story, it was, it was on a podcast. Um, you know, the interviewer was like, oh, well, I mean, was he kidding? And he just says, nope. The fact that this was 20 years ago and everybody saw it, everybody knew, everybody's warning people, everybody's aware. And he just went for 20 years doing that. Plus. Yep. He's still trying to. Yeah. It's all bad. And again, if you look at Spike's character arc, it's an unrequited love. Like, they definitely have a love affair. But, like, the last thing he does in the Buffy series when he dies is she's like, I love you. And he's like, no, you don't. But thanks. Like, his dying thing is to give himself away to save Buffy, even though she doesn't love him. And he he's assaulted her. He's killed people. He's a vampire. He does, He's done horrific things during the series. But, like... yeah. The fact that like, oh, but he'll be redeemed. He'll be redeemed. He can do all these atrocious things. But his arc is that he's the good guy at the end. And I was in love yep. with him, man. That was the first time I ever got the feels. Well, yeah. And when you know, he, you know, that, you know, platinum blonde, that's kind of your, your move. Uh, for the listeners, my wife looked just like Spike when we got together. There's photo evidence. She wears a lot of black um and did it sway me to liking her it, it didn't hurt it didn't hurt that she looked <laughs> like spike yep but again like that shows you how yeah. messed up the series was was that character did horrible things and i'm like what was i like young teens and i'm like he's great i love him like what a hunk well that's uh you know again goes along with the same sort of narrative of you know even like the twilight thing where Ugh. it's like oh he he breaks into your house and watches you sleep and takes your car apart so you can't go see anyone that's not him how like, cute oh love. how romantic young love <laughs> yeah no it's all bad it's just endless and if you go back to the idea of um joss whedon and my note says uh all of his shows are self or insert nonsense <laughs> Um, because he's gone on record saying which characters he identifies with. And if you look at it through that lens, you can see why there were narrative choices throughout a lot of the media he had his hands in that didn't make sense because that's what he wanted to have happen. Like even going back to just uh, Avengers Age of Ultron and the weird, 
you know, out of nowhere romance between Natasha and Bruce Banner is because he identifies with Bruce Banner. The nerdy guy has Uh, to get the hot girl. Oh my God. That makes so much sense. Doesn't it though? And then, and it, it goes on because again, with, you know, Xander and Buffy, I think he's the like prime example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on him. Yeah, we, we shall. Um, but just every step of the way, every, you know, incel, nice guy, wish fulfillment, it happens for him. Yeah. It's, like again, went, the fantasies we're talking about, these are these men's fantasies. Yeah, he, I be, pretty much every character, I think except Buffy, he ends up, like, sleeping with almost all of the attractive female characters, and he gets to, he's the one that gets to leave them. He's the one that gets to hurt them. Like, he leaves his fiance at the altar oh great knowing that that that's like her worst fear the other just horrifying example that i and others have noted and joss Whedon even said himself um i accidentally left this out when we were talking about his you know filmography the series dollhouse whose very premise is horrifying it the premise is there's this you know company where these young beautiful people sign over their bodies to this criminal organization that they keep them as dolls. They wipe their personalities and then they, depending on what they've been hired to do, they give them a new personality and they are that. And it's, it's Elijah Dushku is the main character. I know what you're talking about. Okay. She was also faith on Buffy and there's all sorts of things we could talk about with that as well. But the whole premise is that there's these beautiful nubile women and men who are just, there for the taking and you can turn them into whoever and whatever you want and you know she you know let's you know not forget the fact that these are trafficking victims right right you know but it's it's sexy and she's doing sexy things and you know she's committing sexy crimes and having sexy sex with people against her will um and the self the self insert which is what pulls it all together and makes me want to rip my eyeballs out is the person he identifies with is the character of Topher, the nerdy scientist who imprints the dolls with their personalities. He identifies with the man who takes young women, rips their personalities away and gives them whatever personality he wants to do whatever he wants. Am I Mm -hmm. understanding that correctly? You are. And it's even stated in the show, one of his, uh, one of his colleagues points out that he was picked to work there because he had no morals. Quote, you always thought of people as playthings. This is not a judgment. You always take good care of your toys. Wait, who said that? Another person talking about this character, which could be, I think he, Joss Whedon is telling on himself. You always thought of people as playthings. Yeah. I, I, Oh my god. Oh my god. This man was making so many movies with so many people. And he and he was not, he wasn't hiding it either. No. No. And like and there's so and there's so many subplots on that show that just you know, like you say they tell on themselves. Yeah. And we think it's great but, entertainment. Just fiction, just fantasy. It's not real. It's not real. No one's getting harmed, except literally the actors, let alone everybody else. Yeah, and then you find out through the course of the show that the majority of the people that are these dolls are there against their will. Cool. Like, they signed up under duress, under coercion, under blackmail, 
Um, one of them was put in because she turned down a rich man's offer to be his girlfriend or sleep with him. And so he had her um, imprisoned in this system and now gets to hire her with whatever personality he wants, whenever he wants. Yeah. And the fact that this isn't a horrific horror show, this was placed as a sexy spy thriller, wasn't it? Or like a sexy mystery. Uh, Sexy sci-fi. Oh my God. Yep. You clearly know nothing about women if you think that's a sexy story. And and it shows just how much we've all been brainwashed into or desensitized into thinking that this is okay. Because I remember the show came out and, and thinking like, oh, that's a kind of cool premise. And the whole, the way they framed it is like one of them is Eliza's characters trying to, you know, put the pieces together and, you know, figure out, how, you know, you know, get out. Um but that's not, it's like those things where it's like, you know, you can frame it like it's this cool sci-fi thing, but like, this is a, this is a horror show. Yeah. Like this is, this shouldn't be played for this. This should, this is every woman's nightmare. Like this is right. not, what, that's are, a, what are we doing? It's not even being like, it's not even being appreciated or seen for what it is. It's a nice guy in itself. It's like subtly putting in the, these horrible ideas and this horrible mistreatment and playing it off like it's sexy. And I mean, and there were, you know, when I was looking at it, there were, you know, different commentary about how, you know, you could see it as an interesting commentary on, you know, the role of, you know, dominatrix workers and how they, you know, become whoever they need to be to fulfill whatever person's fantasy, except they have consent and free will. Right. These people don't. That's right. where you, that's where you lose me. They're kidnapped. They're, yeah. they're oh my God. And and that's the character he identifies with is the 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 puppet master who gets to make all these beautiful women do whatever he wants them to do for money. He literally did that. He literally did that. Yep. He took these beautiful Sarah Michelle Gellar, like he he Charisma took Carpenter, Charisma Carpenter abused them. Gal Gadot. He said, "You do what I want. You play how I want. You're my plaything. You play the character yeah. I say you do. You say what I want on and off camera." I control you. And it was right. And like, to your point, as far as like using proxies and sometimes even the actual person he's trying to punish, you know, that's exactly what happened with Sarah Michelle Geller when she started to, you know, exert her own autonomy on set and other, um, after everything kind of came out about the toxic working conditions, other actors came forward and said that she was the one that was trying to advocate for all of them. Cause they were all very young yeah, performers save yeah. a few characters. They were all in their teens or early twenties. James and, was like the oldest, know, I think. Out of the like thirty-four, like the I think. Yeah. yeah, and the rest were um, pretty young. Yeah, I mean, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar was twenty when the oh show started. Oh my god! Um, and I mean, they would. The example that was brought up several times is that you know the they agreed to a thirteen-hour day and they were on hour fifteen, and she was the one that finally said, "No, we need to stop." Right. And she was punished for that. And if they couldn't punish Sarah, they punished the character. And she's she has said that she won't ever discuss, you know, he, she won't go into depth about her experience working on Buffy. She, um, That's her choice, and I, I respect yeah. that completely. But what she has said is that she doesn't watch all of the seasons. She stops after, like, season four or five. And season six is where things get really awful for her, where that scene we discussed happens. 
there was a scene that I can remember distinctly. One, because I was so young, I wasn't sure what was going on. But it was so, this is not real. Uh, this is just a scene. But Spike and I can't remember where in their relationship timeline this is, but it's when they're they're kind of like secretly hooking up, I guess. Spike yeah. and Buffy are up on a balcony and beneath them, the, the oh, other yeah, main characters scene. yeah, are dancing and having a good time. And she's up there with him and paraphrasing it, he's like, you know, basically like you're with me, like you'll never be with them. You'll never have the fun. Look at them down there having a good time. They don't know who you are. And he like, you belong in the darkness with me. And right. he has sex with her. Yeah. And when she's like, she objects in some way. And the line is, if you want me to stop, then stop me. Yep. And then the scene plays out where they have whatever consent is definitely questionable on that one. And then she's like, I hate you after it happens. And I remember yep. watching it. First of all, I wasn't. <laughs> Oddly enough, the position of their bodies, he was behind her. I didn't know enough about anatomy and how people have sex. I didn't know you could have sex like that. So I was very confused as to what the, what was going on in the scene. I remember when I was watching it, I was like, I was like, what is he doing back there? But <laughs> that's just my problem of watching it too young. Um, but I just remember I was like, ooh, this feels really bad. This feels really bad to watch. And it was like, it, what? it was bad. What a horrible. And it wasn't played out like he was essaying her. It wasn't, it was just played out like, ooh, she's torn between two worlds. And it's like, that's yep. not what's happening in that scene. And when you think about like what he was doing to her, like, how he started writing all those scenes where she's in those situations with Spike and that storyline where she hates him. She hates him, but she has to sleep with him. It's like, yikes. Yeah. Um, and I did find the quote. She said, we watched seasons one through five. We skip around a lot in the last two. I have trouble with six. It wasn't appropriate for them at the time. And I just don't want to rewatch it. I believe that's her talking about like watching with her kids. It, well, the other thing that's very interesting about season six, when all of this dark stuff starts happening to that character is that's when technically Joss Whedon took a step back because he was also working on Firefly and Angel. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know, as they always do, um, they put a woman in charge and she's blamed for that season not being good enough. Even though oh there are multiple quotes from people saying like he stepped back, but clearly he had his hand in everything. Yeah, a woman's not writing that type of stuff, that's for sure. And and to be fair, she's taken ownership that some of the choices they made that season were not good choices. Sure. But the idea that it's her fault is I think incorrect. Just re remembering that, like, this is a show where there's literal vampires, like the personification of evil. They're killing people left and right. They're doing terrible things. And Joss Whedon was trying to make the argument that he had to have a character repeatedly essay someone. Because to make them evil? To make them evil? He's a vampire. He's been killing people for thousands of years. I think he might be evil. I think we all know when he's well, killing people and betraying people and literally like stabbing, biting, draining. Like, I think we get it. Well, and that and that's to what we were talking about eons ago as far as 
having the bad people do those bad things. So we know they're bad and those behaviors are bad. We, we, we know that that's not good. We know that that's bad. You had already proven he was evil. Like why? No, that's, that's not necessary. Yeah. When you're sacrificing, like your actors aren't comfortable. Like who is this for? For your own enjoyment. That's my belief. Cause like the the diehard Buffy fans weren't into that. No, no. There's a lot of discourse about how things got real off kilter in the last two seasons, for sure. So, what, yeah, my point, like, it wasn't the fans clamoring for that type of abusive Buffy. No, no. That, that, I mean, that scene, that scene in the bathroom between the two of them is one of the, if not the most controversial scene from the entire show. And it has been pretty much since it happened. Because not only is it, a, a terrible scene on its own but i mean they've set up this situation leading up to that where they're in a, an unhealthy but they're in a romantic relationship like it's it's toxic af sure but it's not that right it's not that at all yeah he's i mean if anything whole, he adores her in this weird way yeah like the whole way they ended up getting together is because she you know at one point at the end of the prior season, she sacrificed spoilers. If you, it's too late for that now. Spoil- <laughs> yeah, I haven't watched it. It's too late. Um, she sacrifices herself to save the world. Yeah. And she dies. Yeah. And then the next season, her friends, the Scooby gang, as they're called, bring her back because they think they need her. And they're afraid that she's, you know, in, in hell or, you know, something somewhere. terrible something like that she's trapped somewhere terrible and they bring her back and she has to deal with this existential crisis of feeling like she's come back wrong and the show itself shows in ways that she has come back wrong Mm -hmm. um and so she takes comfort in spike because he's also got that darkness and she doesn't feel good enough to be with her whole in her mind friends and family anymore Mm mm-hmm which isn't that and just so what a narcissist does to you? Literally, mm-hmm. they like bring you down. They get you to feel darkness. They get you to think you can't be with those people. You're not good enough for those people. He literally put her through a narcissistic abuse cycle through a series. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, just to add insult to injury, you find out later she was in heaven. They yanked her out of heaven back to earth. Cool. Why not? I mean, you've done everything else to her let's just take her from paradise let's just no do it all and it's it it's all bad it's all because they they do the the you know witch, witchy ritual to bring her back and they think it doesn't work so dejectedly they all leave her graveside oh no it did work and she has to dig her way out of her own grave hmm, that's symbolic to the various points you've made there's no reason for that right besides to traumatize this character and this actress like to do you that could have written it there's no why you could have had them dig it up you could have had it you could have had her buried in a mausoleum um, blah, 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 blah. you could have <laughs> i'm so mad i can't talk you yeah. could have had her buried in a mausoleum where it's a little door but no she has to claw her way from her coffin alone i hate it here i hate it here so much so much for female empowerment right and the, and again that comes back to the point of like you know these strong female characters they're they're so strong because they can take any abuse I send their way and keep going. Which doesn't that just sound like some corn right there? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, oh, she can take whatever we give out. And she just keeps asking for more. Well, it's just like this. The like, parallels are painful. Yeah. It's like, that's where, that's where you show your strength. You're, you know, where you show your strength as a woman. It's not in objecting. It's not in fighting for your rights and not in standing up for yourself. It's not of being kind. It's not of being loving. That's not strength. Empathetic. It's not in being soft. Like it's literally in the ability to a, a take horrific abuse and continue on. That's what makes you strong. That's what makes you a yeah. powerful character. And that's the appalling narrative that we need to start unpacking. Right. Uh, to Jessica Chastain's point, this is not our Phoenix story. Mm hmm. Like Stop that's, burning us. That's not it. Like we, and you've said this on other podcasts and videos, like we, our purpose is not to be a vessel for men's pain. Right. And anger. That's not like, we're not sorry. Doing it. Did not. Nope. And, and then these, these men, these creators, they create, if they can't find a real woman, they'll write one. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about the fact that like, as an actress when I was younger, you never do ever do a romance film where the writer is in it ever. Like you'd have, I mean, isn't that just the ultimate self insert? Yeah, literally, literally self insert. They inserted themselves, but it's like they make this oh, fictional world oh. and force. Oh, sorry, not that, but they create this fictional <laughs> world. But it's true that they are the, they literally are They're the hero. Like, they create the fantasy. If I can't make the, this reality, then I will create a fantasy in which it's real. Which is why it's so tragic that it's infiltrated the fantasy and sci-fi realm because. Again, those are supposed, these spaces were created for the misfits to feel safe and yeah. feel empowered. Right. That, that was, that's where it comes from. And to be able to show social commentary on the ills of society. <laughs> nothing is sacred and safe. Oh my God. We're, we have to wrap this up, girl, because we've We do. Talking. We're a mess. Yeah. Let's do some final thoughts aside from what we just said. Like through this whole conversation, we've been talking about a very specific type of nice guy, the nice guy, controller, creative, director, producer, boss, person who, you know, by and large, a lot of us aren't going to run into that person in our day to day life where, you know, they've got control over an entire creative empire. But there are a lot of similarities in these behaviors to people you may run into in your daily life. And I think the important thing to do is to, you know, listen and pay attention when people tell you who they are, when they say the quiet parts out loud, you know, believe them and, you know, know that it's okay to not go along with whatever narrative some guy has decided is the truth for himself and you. Like, just because he's decided to, in his own fantasy narrative, that you are the Madonna or the whore that, you know, has done him wrong, that does not make it true. That's not your story. Just because some guy decided it is, doesn't make it true. You get to decide what your story is. And, and that your story stands despite what it's met with, because like all of these people's stories, especially the Buffy stuff that was happening for 20 years and yeah. all they were probably getting was feedback about how great Joss is. What a nice guy. What a feminist. They're hearing <sighs> him talk about it. They're, you know, they're seeing him at Comic-Cons. Like 
it's like just know that even if you feel like you're the only one you're you're not if someone's mistreating you that way you're not the only one and no matter what you're faced with it doesn't make your truth invalid if you know your truth just like these people knew it they were met with all of hollywood and all of the fandoms and it was still true it was true 20 years plus ago it remained true to this day so never let like the crowd trying to tell you your truth is invalid never let that sway you even if this person that has mistreated you is being seen as this awesome person and this awesome guy other people see it like you, you've, you, I've been in that position where I feel like I'm the only one that sees that this guy is not who he pretends to be, but I'm the only one that knows. So I better just go along with it. Other people see people tell on themselves and these guys are not as smart or as charming as they think they are. It, you're not alone. Again, to the point of why we do this, think critically, think critically about media, think about the way women are being portrayed, think about what things are shown and why they're shown, thinking about if it's necessary. When harm is coming to women in any form of media, was that necessary to the plot? Was this story necessary to be told? Because these men really are telling on themselves through the media and seeing what is normalized, understanding it's not normal, and it, it also tells you, like, when I look back at some of the men I dated who were pretty toxic, some of the things they watched were toxic. The the people they liked, like I dated a nice guy who was obsessed with horror films, certain horror films that were very anti-woman. Um, and just pay just pay attention to the media itself and pay attention to what people like, what media they like, what they engage in, because it can be very, very telling. And you want to be careful with what you're consuming. And even if you like the thing you're watching, it's important to question who it's coming from and why they're saying it. Oh my God, Payne. Well, thank you so much for being here. That was one of the most well-researched podcast episodes we've had. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I hope I brought enough receipts. And if, if I got anything wrong, please let me know. And I, I will correct myself before I wreck myself. No, it was it was very well done. Um, and I appreciate that uh, because this is like one of the times I just got to li listen in horror. Uh <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. And as always, my friends. F the nice guy. <laughs>